Good morning. It's good to see all of you guys here this morning. Today we are in week two of our series called Best Sellers. Since the invention of the, the, the printing press and, and for as long as I'm aware into the, the history of the Bible, as long as it has existed, as, as long as it has existed as a book for sale, it has been the number one bestseller every month, year, and, and beyond um, since its inception. And that's because so many people uh, find so much help and so much encouragement and so much direction and guidance and all the things that, that we have in the Bible. And last week we talked a little bit about how we got the Bible. Uh, that, that for a lot of us, when you know, our experience with, with receiving a Bible uh, was we walked into a store and we bought one off a shelf or we ordered one online and it was shipped to our door and it came and it already had chapters and verses and headings and subheadings and sections and all this other kind of stuff. It had some maps in the back, right? So it was already, I, I like to say, that it was already chaptered, versed, mapped, and wrapped, right? That's, like, that's kind of how we received our Bible. But, but that's not the story of how the Bible came to be, that it was a much more involved process. I would argue, and I think many would, even a miraculous process, that, that God allowed the Bible to, to, to be sustained so that we would have access to it and then information about it that makes it reliable and, and trustworthy. And because all of that is true, we want to put some tools in your toolbox to help you be able to study the Bible. We, we want to help you learn how to unpack what you read in Scripture. I feel like for a lot of people growing up that they, they want to read the Bible and they want to understand the Bible, but I don't know that there's a, a whole lot of help, um, at least in, in my experience growing up. I was told that the Bible was an authority and I should read it and I should understand it. But it really wasn't until I got into Bible college that anybody really taught me how to study the scriptures. And so today we're going to look at a method that, that we've developed and simplified to, to put some handles on how to read and study scripture for everybody. And, and the reason that we want to do that and the reason that we feel that scripture is important is because it's not just a book that we read. Right? As a matter of fact, the, the writer of Hebrews said this about scripture. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And it says, For the word of God is living and active, Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. And this is the part I want to call our attention to. Watch this. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Did you catch that? That as you read the Bible, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart, that it reveals more to you about you than you knew existed. I like to say it this way, and this is a, a point you can write down for emphasis today, is that when you read the Bible, it reads you. That, that when I read the Bible, when I, when I read it the way that we're going to talk about today, what I find is that I end up finding out more about me than I knew about me as a result of reading Scripture. That's because when you read the Bible, it's discerning your thoughts and your intentions. It's reading your heart. And it's telling you things about you that you didn't know. And that's awesome. And because it's so important and because it has the ability to do that, because it's living and active and discerning and reading us as we read it, we want to be very careful not to have a mentality as it pertains to the reading of the Bible where we're just trying to finish it, right? I know that a lot of people that have set out, like, I just, I've never read all the way through the Bible, and so I just want to read it from cover to cover one time in my life. And I think that's great and good, and I think that is a well-intentioned motive on, on how and, or, or at least why someone would start reading Scripture. 
But we want to be really careful that we don't ever just read the scriptures to get through it. Because there were a lot of books in high school and middle school and in my growing up years that the teacher told me I had to read them. And so I read them. I couldn't tell you anything that they said. I don't remember any of the stories that I read. But I read the books so that I could pass the test at the end of the week. And then I did like that brain dumb thing that we do. Anybody else other than me? You cram, 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 read the book, finish it, write the report. And then I don't ever think about that book again. We don't want to have that same approach as it pertains to to this scripture that is living and active and able to read us. So in light of the the significance that we place on scripture here at Fusion City Church, we we developed a a simplified system of being able to read scripture, get something out of it, and then apply it to your everyday life. We call that method me time. Me time. Now, me is not just, me is not you and me is not me. Me is an acronym for a two-letter step or a two-step process where we identify the meaning of what the scripture says. And then we identify how we are to engage with that based on the meaning that we found. That if we can approach scripture with this, this very simplified process, it's simplified, but it's profound. And here's why. Because if we can read scripture... Find out what it means, the particular passage that we're reading, and then find a way to apply it to our lives. That is a two-step process that for a lot of us, for a lot of us, you've never read Scripture that way. You've never looked trying to find a specific meaning and a specific application. And we believe that to read Scripture that way is going to provide us the opportunity to grasp what it is that God has intended in that specific text. And so what I wanted to do today is I wanted to to give you some things to help you be able to figure out the meaning, and then we'll talk about engagement. And then we're going to do some me time together. I know that sounds like an oxymoron because it's me, it's personal, but we're going to do it together. But we're going to do all of that here together this morning. But let me tell you a few things to look for as you read Scripture. You you might going to want to write these down. And we've, we've been teaching this to our students and to our connect groups now for about a year uh, but something that, that all of us can do, it's easy. It's easy enough to do some of these things. And so I, I think that it's, it's worth our time and investment. So as we sit down to, to study and understand a particular passage of Scripture, the first thing that we want to look for is the author and the audience. Who wrote it and to whom was it written? Who wrote it and who did they write it to? Now, as we talk about some of these other steps, we're going to be looking for specific things in the actual words that we read. This is more like a lens that we look through as we study Scripture. That when I know who wrote it, when I know why they wrote it, and when I know who they wrote it to, that helps me better understand how I should receive it as I read it as well. Now, one of the really easy ways... Uh, to figure out who the author and who the audience uh, is of a particular book of the Bible that you're reading through. Um, believe it or not, Google. You can just Google it. You can Google and they'll, just who wrote the book of Matthew. And then Google will tell you that Matthew wrote Matthew. And you can Google Luke and find out that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And then you can Google the book of 1 Timothy and find out that Paul wrote Timothy. Right? See? See, some of y'all didn't know that. You're like, whoa, I thought Timothy wrote Timothy. No, Paul wrote Timothy and he wrote Titus. That's why you need Google, right? It'll help you because determining the author is not insignificant because we want to know who wrote it 
and we want to know who they wrote it to. And the reason that that's important is because not all of the Bible was written to us. Tracking? Do you hear it like this? Not all of the Bible was written to you specifically. All of the Bible is written for us. That there is value in everything contained within the scripture. That all of it is for us. It all has value. But not all of it applies directly to you, the individual. Because primarily in the, 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 book, of, or the book of the Bible, or the book that we have that we call the Bible, there are many books inside the book of the Bible. Primarily there, there are two audiences that you're going to see come, come to, to the surface as you investigate author and audience. You're going to see Jews, Jewish people, and then everybody else. And sometimes in Scripture, it, God or the author will be writing specifically to an individual claiming something for or directing them to do something specific. And it's specific to them, not to everybody. Let me give you a great example of one of the most um, misused and often quoted verses in Scripture is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. And God tells the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29 of the book that we know to be Jeremiah, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and to give you hope and a future. Right? I see people with, with Jeremiah 29, 11 tattoos. And it's like, God has plans for me. He has plans to prosper me and not to harm me and to give me a hope and a future. And he does. But that specific verse was intended for the prophet Jeremiah to be preached to or declared to the nation of Israel as God promised to remove them from Babylonian captivity. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have recently escaped Babylonian captivity? It's none of us. So, so as God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and says, here's what I want you to declare to my people, that I have plans for them, plans to give them a hope and a future and not to harm them but to prosper them. That's an awesome promise because he's an awesome God that can deliver people from captivity. But that promise was not for you and it wasn't for me. As a matter of fact, and we talked about this a little bit, there's a pretty distinct division even in our Bibles between New Testament and Old Testament. And the word testament that we have in our English language isn't really the best translation of the word, but it actually comes from the Latin word that was translated from the Greek word. But the original word was a word that was translated in Greek that we would best understand as covenant. That there was an old covenant. There was an old way of doing business with God. And then there was a new way of doing business with God. There was an old covenant and new covenant. When the word covenant was translated into Latin, which was the primary language of the day for a certain period of time, that word looked a whole lot like the word testament. And so now we have Old Testament and New Testament. But those are two different ways of relating to God. Let me, let me give it to you this way as an illustration and then I'll move on. Um, my wife and I, about a year and a half ago, we built a house. We have a relationship with our house, right? During the building process of our house, we had a relationship with our house that was dependent on our relationship with the builders. That there was a way that my wife and I interacted with our house because it was still in the process of being built. And as the builders were building my house, they told me what I could and couldn't do in my own house. They told me what I, where I could and couldn't put outlets and how, 
where the plumbing had to go and all. They told us a lot of things. We had to deal with our house via and through our builders. Once the house was completed, now we have a very different relationship with the house. We don't, have, we don't have any relationship with our builders anymore. We don't even talk to them anymore. I can't tell you the last time that I texted them. It was for a plumbing issue. But anyway, that's another story. Like, so, but not, we had a warranty. It was a year long. Now the warranty's over. But during the warranty, I, I mean, there's another Bible illustration in there too. I'll, I'll give you that one another time. Sorry, my ADD's acting up a little bit. Y'all hang with me. But there was a relationship that we had with our house while it was being built because we had to go through the builders to have a relationship with our house. But now that the house is complete, we don't need the builders anymore because it's been completed. Now it's our house. We can do whatever we want. We can put outlets wherever we want. We can paint whatever we want. We can change the floor. However, we can do whatever we want inside of our house because the building process has been completed. It was leading up to something, the completion of the house. Once it was completed, now there's a new relationship that we have with our house because now it's, it's ours and we own it and it's complete. If you guys remember the week before Easter, we told you that Jesus from the cross, he, he issued this declaration at, right before he took his last breath. And he said, it is it's finished. It's finished. There was an old way, all leading up to a significant event, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And now there is a new way in which we relate to God, much in the same way that there's a new way that my wife and I relate to our house. Jesus finished and completed the old way so that now we have a different way in which we interact with God. No more sacrificing bulls and goats and sheep and all that other kind of stuff. We have a new way of dealing with and relating to our heavenly Father. That new way is outlined for us in what we call the new covenant or the new testament which means as you read the old testament it's valuable the old testament has tremendous intrinsic value but all because it was leading up to something and now since the completion of that we have a new way of dealing with our heavenly father so as we read unless you're an old testament jew you relate to scripture according to the new covenant. That's why it's important for us to determine the author and the audience. Because if the audience of what we're reading is Old Testament and it was written to the nation of Israel through the prophets or through the law, then that was how God was dealing with them prior to the completion of things. But now that it's completed, we have a new way of understanding the, the audience of the New Testament because they were operating under a new covenant, a new system. Second thing we're going to look for. So we're going to identify the author, who wrote it. We're going to identify the audience, Old Testament, New Testament, Jew or not. And we're going to also look for some repeating words. Anytime that the Bible repeats itself, we want to pay attention to that because it's significant. Every time the words repeat, it's to show emphasis. It's something that God really wanted us to pay attention to. So that's number two. We're going to find author, audience. We're going to look for repeating words. The third thing we want to look for is cause and effect. Or contrast, words that identify some kind of separation between two different events. We're going to look for words like therefore, right? Somebody tell me, when you see a therefore in Scripture, you have to stop and see what it's there for, right? See how we did that? That's a, that's a cause and effect word. When you see a therefore in Scripture, you got to stop, figure out what it's there for. Other words like so, so then, or because of, or but, 
or by which. Every time you see one of these phrases that indicate cause and effect or contrast, I like to circle those in, the, in my Bible to, to help me identify those as I'm trying to determine the meaning of the text that I'm looking for. So I want to look for things like cause and effect and things like contrast because these often identify promises in the Bible that we can relate to when we find these cause and effect. Let me give you, let me give you a good example, uh, somewhat famous verse in Scripture, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says this, it says, For the wages of sin is death. That's cause and effect. Sin is death, cause and effect. But, contrast, here's some good news. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is by Christ Jesus. There's cause and effect. But sin leads to death. So you got sin leads to death, that's cause and effect. You got but, that's contrast. And then you've got eternal life in Jesus, which is cause and effect. You guys see that? We good? All right, good. So I would circle, every time I see that, I would circle or highlight those things to point out to me the meaning of that verse. So the third thing we're going to look for is cause and effect or contrast. We want to try to identify those words in Scripture to help us determine the meaning. And the last thing is absolute words. Words like all and always or never, every, things like that. Anything that determines a, com- a complete amount of something. Because anytime that we find these absolute words, it points to, again, promises that God has given to us. That God will always do this. God will always or he, God will never. It gives us an ide- a picture of the identity of God and the nature and the character of God. That as we identify these absolute words, it gives us a picture of things that God will always do, things that God will never do, things that we should always do or things that we should never do. And absolute words point us to those things to help us understand the meaning of a particular text. Let me give you another practical example. We know it to be the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Watch this, see if you can find some of the absolute words. All right, you ready? Watch this. And Jesus came and said to them, all, I'll help you, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them, we're going to do that today, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those words have significant meaning to that particular passage because they give us a picture of what it is that God is trying to get across to us. So that's, those are the steps that we would have you take to determine the meaning of a passage. You want to determine the author, the audience, Old Testament, New Testament has a lot of bearing on that. If you need help with it, we'd encourage you to ask us. We want, to help, we want you to find that the repeating words, things that, that God adds for emphasis. We want to identify contrast, comparison, and cause and effect. And we want to identify some absolute words because those help us to identify the promises that God makes in Scripture and the commands that he gives us on how to live. So what I thought we'd do for the remainder of our time here this morning is that I wanted to give you an example of how this looks like played out in, in your everyday life. I want to help, we're going to do some me time together. And I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to let you cheat off the teacher uh, for a minute because this week in our connect groups, we're going to walk through together John chapter 2. 
Now, John chapter 2 has three primary sections in it. I'm going to walk through the first section of the second chapter of John's gospel. And I'm going to give you a little bit of how I would read this and apply the me time practices to this. Now, I will tell you, I was tempted to choose a different passage because a lot of the steps that I gave you as far as repeating words and cause and effect and contrast and even absolute words, those don't show up a whole lot in John chapter 2 because John is telling a story of something that happened. So here the most significant thing that I would apply to the second chapter of John's gospel is the author and the audience. This is going to bear a lot of weight on what it is that I take away from this particular passage. Because we learned last week that John was writing to people who he wanted to believe. He said this in chapter 20, I'm writing these things. I wrote the things down that I wrote down because I want you to believe in the same Jesus that I saw do these things. Now, because I know that, because I know that John is the author, because I know that he was writing to a future version of people that he hadn't met yet, knew that he wouldn't meet, but that he was writing to try and inspire those people that would read his document, this book that he was writing. He wanted to inspire them. I know that. So that's the lens that I'm going to read John chapter 2 through in order to determine what it is that John wants me to get out of what he's writing. You guys got me? You good? You following me so far? Do your hands like this if you are. All right, four of you. Awesome. All right, guys. So uh, John chapter 2, we're going to read this together, just the first 12 verses. I'll leave the rest of the chapter for you and your connect group this week. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, and the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, let me stop. I'm not, I didn't really want to teach this text this way. But when Jesus says woman here, I don't want you all to think that's a derogatory term. If I call my wife woman, I probably get smacked. Um, I do it sometimes for fun because she knows I'm kidding. But this would have been a term that was more endearing. This would have been almost like m'lady. Like that's, kind of, that's, kind of, that's, that's the connotation. Do you like the curtsy? Do you like that? <laughs> like, that that's how, so this would have been like m'lady. That's how he's, he's talking to his mama with respect, y'all. All right, that's a really southern way of saying that. His mama with respect. That's what's going on. I just wanted to point that out before we moved on. All right, so woman, my lady, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever. There's an absolute word. Do whatever this man tells you to do. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. That's important. We'll come back to that. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, And then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. In other words, you bring the good stuff out till people get drunk, then they don't care what they're drinking. That's what what that means. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Cause and effect. He did this so that his glory would be seen. And his disciples believed him, cause and effect, because of what they saw. After this cause and effect, 
he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, I'm going to let you guys read the rest of the chapter this week as you study and prepare for your group. It gets pretty cool right here. Jesus goes down to the temple and starts wrecking stuff. It's awesome. You should go read the chapter. It's great. But all of that is set up by, it calls an effect by what we just read. So here's how I would read this. Knowing that John wants me to believe in the same Jesus that he saw do these things. He told me about this event because the sign that Jesus performed points to something. This isn't just a party trick, the water to wine thing. This is not a party trick. It points to something. So I want to give you that really quick and we'll move on. Jesus, the reason that he chose to use the Jewish rites of, of, of sacrament and washing, he chose these instruments of Jewish ceremonialism. The, the jars that would have been used for ceremonial cleansing or washing. Jesus chooses these containers to perform his sign. Why did John choose to tell us this story? Because John wants us to see the distinction between Old Covenant, the old way of relating, the Jewish system of sacrifice and washing and cleansing and all the things that the Jews would have done. I believe John chooses this sign because he wants us to know that Jesus chose something that the Jews would have used for their ceremony, and he uses it to declare his glory. Old way is going away. I am completing it. I am working to finish that system, and I am instituting a new system in my blood. He turns it into wine, which we now know is through uh, the Lord's Supper, an, an indicator of his blood. Jesus changes the Jewish system into the new covenant system. He uses something that would have been used in their ceremony to point to his identity. Isn't that awesome? I say, I don't think I'd even pick up on that if I didn't know how badly it is that John wants me to know something about Jesus. But as I read John, understanding who the author was and understanding that I am his audience and that he wants me to believe, that's how I was able to, to find and decipher that out of the text that we just read. Because I went looking for something more in this than just to, just to read through John chapter 2. I went looking for what it is that John wanted me to find. And the second thing that I see, and then I'll close, is that Jesus chose to reveal the miracle, the true miracle, to reveal the sign, not first to the officials, not first to the bridegroom, not first to the master of ceremony there, the master of feasts. But Jesus reveals the sign and the miracle to who? To the servants. Jesus levels the playing field and elevates the lowest among us to the same level as everybody else. He revealed it to them first. So as I read this, here's what I find. Here's the meaning of this text. Jesus is who he says that he is, and he chose to identify himself by by performing the sign through the Jewish ceremony system to identify him as the institutor of the new covenants. That, it means that. It also means that Jesus wants to elevate the position of everyone to an equal standard, that we are all on the same level playing field as it pertains to our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus levels it. That's what I find is the meaning in this text. Now, how do we engage with that? What do we do with it now that I found it? In the same way that Jesus elevated people, man, that, doesn't, that, that means that I have to also elevate people to the same level. That's, that's how I would engage with this. In the same way that Jesus claimed to be who he said that he was and then to elevate the role of those who were the lowest among us, I too should understand that Jesus is who he says that he is and that I should also elevate those that would be considered the lowest among us. 
it causes me then not to look down on people in the same way that God didn't choose to look down on us. So I, I look for author, audience. I look for all the other things, the, the absolute words, repeating words. Not a whole lot of that in narrative passages. But the author and the audience tells us a lot about what we're to take away from that passage. And then how we engage with it. What do we do with what we read? You guys enjoy that? Was that good? That helpful? All right, good. Now you get to take that. That's awesome. Now you get to take that. Do it with the rest of John chapter 2. Go sit down with your connect group this week because you're all supposed to be in a connect group. Go sit down with some other friends who read the same thing and y'all talk about it. Because then you're going to learn from them and they're going to learn from you. In the same way that all y'all got to learn from me today. Right? Now I'd love to learn from all of y'all today. We ain't got time for that. We got to go back baptize some people. So let me pray. And then we're going to go celebrate some baptisms. I'm excited. Pray with me. Father, God, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are, for how you love us. God, we thank you for your word and the access that we have to it through the gospel writer John. God, today, as we've looked at what it is that you would have us to learn from this passage, God, would you just remind us once again of your supremacy, that you are, that your son Jesus is who he says that he is. He is our Savior. He is the Messiah. He is your son, our one true God. And Father, would you help us like him to elevate those that are lowest among us, that we would see them in the same way that we see ourselves, sinners in need of your grace and your forgiveness. We thank you, God, that we can do so through Jesus, your son. It's in his name I pray. Amen.